Welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, we are going to be taking an inside look at how Whirlpool creates field service differentiation. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast today, Simone Silva, who is the Senior Director of Consumer Services, and Matt Gannis, who is the Director of Home Services, both at Whirlpool. Simone and Matt, welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Okay. Um, so we're going to have ourselves a regular party here, uh, and I'm going to do my best to make sure. Um, it's been a long time since I've had two people on at once, but I think I can handle it. Okay. So to start, I'm just going to ask you both to share a little bit more about yourself, uh, your backgrounds, et cetera. Um, and Simone, I'm going to start with you. If you can also just I think most people are familiar with the Whirlpool brand, but if you can just also sort of recap um, the organization as well, that would be great. Sure, no problem. So starting with Whirlpool, Whirlpool Corporation has a portfolio of iconic brands, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Here uh, in the United States, the brands that we go to market with are the, the very popular uh, major appliances brands, Whirlpool, Maytag, KitchenAid, Jenner, and uh, Amana. So pretty clear segmentation uh, in different portfolios by brands, but we do believe that uh, we have, that's a, one of our strengths. We, we go to market with uh, products that really deliver to the experiences that our consumers are looking for. Uh, Whirlpool, uh, has uh, 111 years of uh, history in the United States and in the world. So uh, it's uh, it does make us very proud to be part of uh, such a, a great corporation. Uh, switching gears to myself, I've been with the company for 16 years now. It's hard to believe it's been that long. And uh, prior to Whirlpool, I worked in automotive for additional 11 years. But here with Whirlpool, my experience has been in uh, quality and service. So about half and half. So half of my tenure with Whirlpool in product quality, supplier quality, and uh, half of my tenure with the company in field service. And more recently, in the last uh, four years, leading consumer services as a function for Whirlpool. For us, consumer services is inclusive of our B2B and B2C contact centers and all of our home services, uh, home delivery, installation, and uh, appliance repair. Okay, great. Thank you, Simone. And Matt? Yes. Uh, so I started with the company about 15 years ago. Um, most of my responsibilities were all within consumer services. I actually started off as a call agent into uh, the call center with an array of responsibilities. Started on the front line, went into project management, and even uh, got the opportunity to lead our executive corporate teams. I transitioned to service about five years ago uh, to help elevate the service as a differentiator uh, strategy. And uh, as we focus on services, my team's responsibility to deep dive into process opportunities for operational improvements in the field. Awesome. I always say when um, people have been at an organization, especially today, I mean, we know that like talent is tough, turnover is high, et cetera. When people have been at a company for 10, 15 plus years, you know, I always say it's, it's, it tells me that the company does a good job of, you know, not only keeping people happy, but giving people opportunities to grow and expand in their careers, which I think is is really cool. Um, okay, so Simone, when when we chatted previously, you said that uh, about seven years ago, Whirlpool made the decision to really focus in on field service as a path to differentiation. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about how the company has done that, but. Can you talk first about, you know, how the the company recognized the opportunity to use service in that way and really, um, you know, put more power behind the brand through its its field service uh, function? Sure. Well, um, I 
like to, to describe this as uh, it all starts with the realization that when a person makes a decision to purchase an appliance, uh, that person is making a long-term commitment. Nobody buys a major appliance for their homes to be a short-lived uh, product that they will deal with for just a couple of months and then be already looking for the next replacement. We are talking about durable goods that will very likely be part of a person's life for the next seven, 10 years, many times uh, way over that, that time frame. So in, in pre-heavy use, uh, you deal with your refrigerator, your stove, your microwave every single day, multiple times a day. So what we realized that is that when somebody makes that kind of commitment to one of our brands, we need to offer more than just the product itself. We need to, to offer an ecosystem that comes with that product and really impact their lives in a positive way. And that's the, the role that uh, service can play. Uh, when you go to market with uh, a portfolio of products that carry that credibility of high quality service, of friendly service that will be available in any place where you need it, at the time that you need it, uh, I think this gives a peace of mind to consumers that uh, is definitely uh, part of the consideration set of whether or not they, they should be making an investment. So I said it started with that realization. It was about uh, seven years ago, like, like you said, that we uh, agreed to pursue that opportunity. So to really make service a differentiator for each one of our brands. And it's not just the look and feel. We are not talking about uh, a technician that shows up in someone's home with a, a branded T-shirt and when they go on the next appointment, they change shirts. It's not just the, the optics of it. It's, it really goes down to leaving that home and, and leaving the consumer with a very positive experience, an experience that makes them want to uh, stay loyal to our brands. So uh, Matt can for sure talk more about uh, all the details of what we do there, but we do take seriously the uh, opportunity of be, being welcomed into somebody's homes and uh, really make the best of that, not just repair an appliance that, that needs repair, but also educate that consumer on the best way to maximize performance and quality and, and really make, make their lives easier by uh, utilizing our appliances. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, and, you know, I talk to companies every day that are looking at, you know, how to evolve through service, expand their business through service, differentiate through service, et cetera. And, you know, you mentioned that Whirlpool has 111 year old history, right? And so it's, it's really common that even once a company recognizes that there's this potential to use service more strategically, when you're going from just a long history of a product focused mindset, it's a big change to put service, you know, uh, at the top of the list as well. And, and to have that be top of mind. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is, um, you know, we talked about the fact that the company, you know, I, I think in part to work toward that mindset shift, the company, um, will have a service leader go side by side with, uh, a salesperson to customers so that, you're always representing service alongside the the product um, and making sure that, you know, the brand is always seen internally and externally as, as both. Um, Matt, can you talk a little bit about that process and sort of the thinking behind it and what you've found by kind of, I don't want to say forcing that, you know, uh, them to unite, but, you know, I think it's, it's, making sure everyone's working together. Yeah, um, I think it's really critical that you have a collective strategy on the sales and service side. Um, you know, sales, they have to sell the product really well. And it's important to showcase if 
products do fail. We don't expect them to, but if a failure or repair does occur, uh, we need to have the right service recovery processes, not only to fix the product, but ensure that we regain trust from our consumer within the service network. So I look at this as service as a true catalyst for brand power. And when you when you couple that with the right selling strategy, this is where I believe that differentiating the market in the marketplace can truly occur. Yeah. And this is it's a stumbling block for a lot of companies, right? Because it's they kind of focus on the service transformation within the service function, but not on connecting it to the other parts of the business, right? And it just, it's a missed opportunity because a, a customer becomes a, cus- a customer through that sales process. But if you have service there from the beginning, it makes for a more seamless customer experience, right? Um, and it also reinforces internally the mindset of the fact that the product and the service go hand in hand. Um, okay, so service is is as of seven years ago, uh, a key focus in terms of differentiation for Whirlpool. And um, we're going to, again, talk about some of the the specific tactics and processes, et cetera. But um, another thing we have to mention that I think people will find interesting is um, that Whirlpool made the decision to focus on providing its service exclusively through um, independent service providers. Um, so Simone, can you talk a little bit about that decision? I sure can. Um, the, we've, we've explored both models. We've had many years of experience with a factory service model. And, uh, we also have, uh, a lot of years of reliance on independent providers. I think that anybody who is really invested in understanding the service industry will come to the conclusion that in the United States, the most successful service companies, they are, uh, they most of them start as a family business and they are on the fourth, fifth generation within that same family. So the, the way I, I like to think about it is that by partnering with those providers, we get the best of both worlds because we come in with the the drive and likely so the the infrastructure of a big corporation. And we pair that with the the passion uh, of a small business owner or a family owned business. And uh, it is very regionalized. We do know that that our, characteristics uh, when it comes to regulations and licenses and things that are very particular to the uh, subdivisions or the the different geographies in the country by partnering with uh, independent providers, that factor already starts to not be a a roadblock for a large corporation operating out of the headquarters here uh, in Michigan. Mm -hmm. I think uh, independents have uh, more agility and flexibility to scale up and down to to our service needs more so than uh, what a a large corporation uh, would have. But it doesn't come without a a very high level of trust and partnership. Like I said, we only were confident that this would be a model uh, interesting for us and right for Whirlpool because uh, we had the right relationships with those providers. We had their absolute loyalty uh, and passion for our brands. When you talk to any of our providers, particularly the the ones that uh, are from what we call the W service network, that's a subset of uh, independent providers that manage most of our volume in the market, they speak about our shared consumers with all the same uh, passion and willingness to provide a great experience that any of us uh, would within Whirlpool. So when you have all those elements, there is no reason why not to leverage uh, that as as our model and and build up on all the positives of it, the uh, 
business business uh, small business mindset, the passion, the knowledge of the the different uh, regional areas, uh, and that's what I see as one of our biggest advantages. Yeah, um, I love that, and I think that um, you know when you talk about the decision strategically to put more focus on differentiating through the field service experience. I think for some people then saying, and we're doing that through independent providers, those two things would be at odds with one another. Do you know what I mean? So that's what makes this an interesting story because you know you have found a way to, like you said, bring together the best of both worlds. Um, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about how you're doing that. Matt, were you gonna say something? Yeah, just to build on that, Sarah, I think, um, you know, we've had to Simone's point, both models, right, our, our internal technicians and independents. And I think there's benefits of both. Um, I think what we see as a unique and interesting dynamic to play out here is the entrepreneurial spirit with our independents. As Simone alluded to, uh, we look at these, um, these entities in the marketplace as entre entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that provides a level of skin in the game. If, if um, you can kind of look at it as, you know, we both partner with a trusted relationship. And I think if we back up and we start to see how this relationship plays, uh, we, mo we mutually agree that we, we need to improve. Uh, we have to have the right operational efficiencies. And ultimately, we, we want to deliver to the customer expectations and those requirements to have a five-star experience. I think if we do it right, um, we've learned that these efficiencies not only help serve our mutual consumers, but they also can uh, deliver uh, higher profit margins to the bottom line. Uh, and together, it kind of becomes uh, a, a very viable partnership. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be like a hands-off management system. In fact, we found the more integrated and embedded we both are, um, that partnership continues to grow. And uh, both we, you know, both of um, both of these uh, these relationships, I think, have a significant amount of skin in the game, and we kind of win or lose together. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point, Matt. It's it's mutually beneficial, but it's also shared risk, I guess, or shared reduction of risk. And what I mean by that is, if you think about an entrepreneur, you know, a lot of times the objective there is they want to be independent, right? They don't want to go work for whirlpool proper they don't want to sell the family business they want to be independent but with that comes the risk of okay am i going to have enough business from quarter to quarter or year to year right and so this partnership partnership gives them some stability and then on the flip side you know um it gives whirlpool i think a lot of agility right so Simone, you mentioned not having to worry about those regional differences, like being able to trust those providers with some of the things that don't need to be Whirlpool's core competency or, you know, uh, area of expertise um, allows you to not have to focus on all of it and, and leverage these partners in a more agile way than if you were trying to, you know, uh, globally or, or even um, regionally standardize, uh, everything. Um, so yeah, really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And Sarah, one aspect that I think is very critical and at times, uh, people in corporate jobs like ours, we lose sight or we don't think of how relevant that is, is to design an experience around the, the consumer behaviors, the, the human element was that individual who will make the first phone call to request a service visit. When you run market studies uh, in this area, in North America, you see that that is uh, a tendency, that is a preference of uh, consumers to rely on that company that they, they drive by every day. And, and they, they know it's a, a reliable service provider associated with Whirlpool. They have in smaller towns, they have kids who go to the same school and that's the reality of our service industry. So it would be not very smart of us to ignore that fact and just assume that consumers would also uh, value 
our approach to service with a one-size-fits-all, a national provider, as being their best choice. No, when they have that uh, trust, that reliance on a community small business that's they're serving, we are better off partnering with those companies and bringing our very best to them, but also leveraging uh, what they can bring to the table uh, in order to deliver that ideal customer experience that we want the Whirlpool consumers to, to count on. So it's definitely a win-win uh, and they know we depend on them, but we also value our partnership. We are here for the, the long run and, and like year over year, they, they have our commitment. Don't take that as we don't hold them accountable. Matt can speak to all the details of our uh, management operating systems, our governance, but at the end of the day, it's all to make all those independent providers better Mm -hmm. and together deliver an ideal customer experience. That makes sense. All right, so Matt, let's talk about um, some of those aspects. So you said, and, and um, Simone said this to me the first time we spoke is, you know, we have to keep in mind that going independent doesn't mean being hands-off, right? So I think a lot of that trepidation comes from you're just relinquishing all control and hoping that the people you are partnering with will do what needs to be done. And and so we're going to talk about how that's not the case. Um, so we're going to go through some of the ways that Whirlpool is working to um, direct, equip, and empower its field force via the, the partnerships. Um, so the first thing I think we've talked about a little bit, which is this regional approach. So you are you are are taking this regional approach, but you have district managers, am I understanding this correctly, that gives regional leadership to pair with the the contract uh, workforce or the independent service providers. Can you talk a little bit about that structure? Yes. So think of it as um, kind of deploying consulting services across the nation. Um, and a lot of the times uh, our service providers teach us way more than what we can teach them. But we believe it all starts with like the proper values, establishing them within their culture, um, what type of tools they're utilizing on a day to day to potentially solve problems. And then how do they maintain the proper disciplines day in, day out to maintain the results? Um, so some of the things in terms of our methodologies of how we work is all around continuous improvement and lean uh, tools and principles. Uh, we believe by applying these we, and we've tested and we, these are kind of tried and true establishments of how our partnerships work. In terms of governance, and we think about this as kind of like our operating rhythm. Uh, we call uh, our management operating system here um, kind of the, the foundational elements of how we work. Um, you know, we look at what are the process nodes that make up um, taking care of a consumer? Do we have all the right attributes? Is there waste within that process? Where do we want to find improvements? How do we start to go and prioritize those improvements one by one through kind of maybe even a, a process failure mode effective analysis? So establishing this type of infrastructure into our service companies, we believe makes them stronger and ultimately allows them to slowly start to identify and get very excited when opportunities or problems arise. Um, there's a couple of other things around capabilities and, and competence building that I wanted to talk through as well. You know, we do have traveling trainers. Um, we have uh, what we would have, you know, depending on some of the opportunities that we see by product categories some dedicated training that goes across our network. Um, but it was not only focused on the technical uh, altitude, it's also the soft skills. Um, and that competency development uh, is really critical. Uh, when we do have a repair needed, it's um, an elevated experience that we, we, we aspire to achieve. And we have to think about, in some cases, fixing the consumer first versus the product um, and focusing on listening and learning from our service providers uh, is, is very critical on how we do that. Uh, emotional intelligence in the home uh, and ensuring that we have the right 
consumer interaction training. Uh, and that's deployed through our competency development training in-house. And if we do those things right, uh, it all kind of equates to kind of what our output of measurements are. So we, we're very big on the numbers here at Whirlpool. We, we try to measure all the things that are valuable uh, within the experience, um, but measuring performance such as customer ratings or even um, operational metrics, um, it really is a, a way to look at, are we meeting expectations? Are we delivering upon our promise? And if we are coming up short, what are our actions to get us there? And that's really what our regional approach is with our uh, field service business managers across the nation. Okay. So those regional managers, um, I have a couple questions on this and I'm assuming our listeners would be curious too. Um, how many independent service providers do they work with? Um, and what do those relationships look like? Like how often are they interacting? Are they interacting in person or do those people only work remote? You know, like what, what does, what do those relationships look like? Yeah, so um, from kind of a relationship, you know, kind of ratio based, it, it depends on the region, it depends on the district. Uh, but you could have a field service business manager that takes up anywhere from 150 companies, depending on uh, their market. Um, what we do have is different tiers uh, within our network. So we do prioritize our exclusivity. Um, that's where we have a, a lot of uh, companies that have gone all in with us, and we see this as a competitive advantage. So a lot of our time is spent there. Uh, and how the relationship dynamics kind of play out is, um, obviously, we got to, we, we kind of look at, um, you know, a relationship based uh, approach, right? Um, we feel like if we have the right relationship, uh, we're going to get the right result. Um, but results are going to take a response. Uh, and, and they're going to take, uh, you know, folks that are going to listen and apply and also have us listen and apply what they need from our end uh, to be in position to, to win in the marketplace and ultimately take care of our consumer. Um, what I do think is um, critical, though, is uh, you, you still have, uh, you know, another uh, 149 uh, service companies that are out there that need to be taken care of. So it is all about how we we put together an operational rhythm through the management operating system, uh, we do look at how do we optimize? How do we automate? How do we create self-service options? Those are very critical. So the reliance on these field service business managers are minimized uh, and they can go after truly kind of what the strategic priorities are in the field. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, I want to go back to the point you made about the exclusive partners. Um, so Going back a couple of years, there was a, a podcast I did with uh, a gentleman um, from Foxtel, so uh, in in Australia, and they had a, an all contract model, different situation, different industry, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, this idea of prioritizing those relationships makes sense, um, and I'm just curious, like, what motivation does Whirlpool give those providers to be exclusive providers? Does it just happen or are there incentives for them to be or do that? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so what we have here is an earned performance model. Um, and so as performance is recognized, uh, the market is earned by the service provider. Uh, it, it's critical for us to do our part to position them well, to win the market. Um, but as Simone alluded to, we hold our servicers accountable uh, through the 200 plus MSAs across the country. Majority of those are filled with our exclusive providers. Um, and as they are performing, uh, what we've done in the past is we've recognized that performance by actually clearing out some of those servicers uh, that were in those markets as backups. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as they're providing the proper availability, meeting our customer expectations, we do everything that we can to create more of a healthy, viable uh, service network, especially with our exclusivity. Yeah, and it's uh, a, a conclusion that we get to together with them. Mm -hmm. So part of the, the things that those district managers are charged with is really to understand the exact service need for the area that they cover. What is the demand? Align what we are seeing from a service calls uh, standpoint 
with uh, sales projections. What are the, the new products that are hitting the market and likely staying within that area? So that business intelligence allows for them to uh, understand, okay, do I need to grow an exclusive provider that might be based out of a, a highly populated metropolitan area and give that company an opportunity to expand? Uh, am I better off because I'm in a rural area with uh, houses that are miles and miles apart from each other to operate through independence? So that is a strategy behind uh, each one of those decisions. But when we see an opportunity for somebody to turn exclusive, uh, that are a few things that need to be true. So performance for sure is uh, one of them. Uh, healthy demand uh, flow of business going into that company is another one. And at the end of the day, they get to that uh, decision by themselves because they also see uh, all of the efficiencies that they can gain and efficiencies translate into higher profitability by simplifying their operation, by eliminating the complexity of filing service claims with two or three or four warrant administrators mm -hmm. by having to keep their uh, workforce trained and up to date in a variety of uh, of uh, different brands. If it's hard alone for them to get familiar with all the products uh, in our portfolio, if our four brands, imagine if they are uh, a shop that serves uh, everybody else. So they get to those conclusions uh, and we only convert somebody to the exclusive model when it's mutual, mutually beneficial. It needs mm -hmm. to be a win-win. So we really take along that uh, commitment of uh, high partnership and uh, that district manager will get to that conclusion together with uh, a candidate when we have a, a company that is a candidate for exclusivity. Mm -hmm. But fair enough, we do prioritize. We, we would like to see that model uh, growing even bigger than it is today. Mm -hmm. Now, this is is maybe an unfair question because it wasn't one we talked about. But uh, you know, I have to go off script when I think of things that are are really relevant. So, um, so we've talked a lot about like how this works when it's going well, right? So the investment that Whirlpool is putting into having these regional. Um, managers that that work with uh, these different companies, um, you know, investing in capabilities and competence building, etc. Um, what happens when it doesn't go well? Okay, so what I'm envisioning is, you know, what if there's a a company that, you know, you're saying, hey, we're we're doing some traveling training and we want to come through and, you know, meet with the team, blah, blah, blah. And they say like, no, we don't want to, or, you know, there's, um, they don't want to really meet or engage a lot with the regional manager, you know, like, I, I guess I'm talking about, you know, there would be in the metrics, if there's a glaring problem, you know, like that's going to come up and you're going to be like, whoa, 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 like this is a bad customer experience. We need to deal with this immediately. But I'm just wondering, like, knowing that the objective is differentiation through field service, through a very positive brand experience, I'm not necessarily asking how you weed out like any flagrant problems, because that seems like they would surface, but more so like, how do you move past the relationships where they don't want to be as collaborative as Whirlpool wants to be? Because that's a, that is the risk, right? Is the companies that aren't engaged or don't want to participate, that's where you would be nervous about the, the customer experience. I can take a, a shot at this one, Simone, and then maybe uh, you can fill in the gaps. But um, and Sarah, you know, as I as I talk to a little bit of the management operating system, I'll bring it right back to that. Uh, you know, we we do have early warnings being identified or signals within the management operating system that says, okay, things just aren't going the way that we expected. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first thing that happens is you get a you get a phone call, right? Um, I will say with our network, and and maybe we are. Um, we're spoiled and, and lucky on this. Um, 
99.9% of the time, you have service companies that are willing to work with us. Um, we know, I think it's really important to set those expectations at the beginning of the partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very diligent on who we authorize. Uh, you're just not coming into the network to be authorized for for no reason or, or um, you know, we, we just, you know, put a check in the box and you go do do your thing and service our consumers. We're we're looking at how do we actually build uh, a fundamental a fundamental relationship with you operationally, and that's going to take both of us to to do our part. Um, and you know, as I start thinking about the the authorization process, right? I mean, we have robust governance and systems that they have to um, be approved for. Uh, so it starts with the background checks. It starts with um, making sure that they have the right insurance and all of the criteria established there to be an authorized servicer. Uh, and as we're going through that process, that process is elongated. This doesn't happen over you know 24 hours. This is a, a two, three week process where we're working with that company. We have a whole onboarding package, right? It's a playbook that we share within that playbook. We're setting the expectations of, you know, what are these metrics that you need to hit? If they aren't hit, uh, what are going to be some of the consequences? And what we do is we give everybody the benefit of the doubt of what what do we need to bring to the table to make you successful? And we start there. We ask questions. We go and see. Uh, a lot of my team is traveling across the country on a weekly basis. Uh, I just came back yesterday from New Jersey. So, you know, there are a lot of time and dedication here, commitment to going seeing operations. When we go and see, it's just not a honk wave. We bring donuts and coffee and we'll see you know, in the next couple of quarters. It's a matter of let's go in and really diagnose your operations. Mm -hmm. What's the assessment? Are you healthy? Let's look at everything end to end. Let's map it out. And that lean and continuous improvement methodology is critical. And if they're not embedding that, what what does it take for them to understand a couple of those problem solving techniques so we can get these incremental wins? And after we exhausted all of our resources and things still aren't happening, right? Uh, of course, we have uh, an improvement plan um, and we, we, we have consequences behind that. Uh, but it's within, I think, the, the relationship expectation that we do everything to be successful and we grow together. Um, and when things don't go right, it's not about pointing the finger. It's about let's go to the data and understand what can we operationally change or adjust to put us back into a winning position. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, and I I would uh, give kudos to Matt and his team uh, for how detailed, how granular that um, management of the the network in the entire country is. Mm-hmm. They have. Uh, all of their early signals, like like Matt uh, called them, down to a zip code level, down to uh, technician level. So we have the ability to chase every single one of those signals. And honestly, when you approach a problem that way, it's less about finger pointing and having that uh, very cold relationship where we are paying for a service a service and they need to serve us well. And no, we are there to problem solve with them. And they are very open to that. In my uh, couple of years uh, leading this team, some people might get the wrong idea there that we hire and fire companies every other day. (laughs) And and it's not really the case. Uh, We have a a very um, consistent and and sustainable base of uh, service companies that are wanting to, to work with us. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them have opportunities for improvements, but we, we are working together to, to address them. So there were very few and rare cases where we had a straight uh, elimination of somebody from our network. Uh, and it's never a, a quick move. Uh, we consider the, the consumers that will be impacted. We make sure that that a district manager once again uh, has uh, a plan for for the that area because we need to to have coverage and and I agree with Matt maybe we are um, spoiled because we rely on I I wouldn't be afraid to say the best ones out there they, they are working with us but we also have very strong coverage 
uh, I used to ask the team, okay, why our coverage is not 100%, it's 97%. Their answer has always been, we only do not cover the zip codes where there are no appliances, mm -hmm. cemeteries, uh, <laughs> airports, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the kind of thing. But jokes apart, that puts us in a, in a position that whenever we are dealing with uh, problems and chasing those uh, signals, we have uh, time to put a plan together and yeah. make sure that uh, the service needs for that area will be taken care of. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I, I didn't mean to insinuate, I think you have a lot of those. It was more the, the conversation around the early indicators because you don't wanna wait until you see a lagging indicator in customer experience to notice, oh, okay, maybe something's off here, right? Um, so that makes sense. Okay, have a couple more questions I wanna try and get through. Um, so I'll put this to both of you, um, which is really just, you know, there is this element uh, within companies that sort of fear this model, that fear lacking control or that they're going to sacrifice quality or consistency of service, you know. Um, and so what would you say to that fear? I, I think that the fear keeps us on our toes and keeps us honest to what we uh, intended to achieve with our model. It's not about taking control over their businesses. It's never been. It all It's all about that customer experience and together uh, we succeed. So that's how we see it. That's how I hope we come across when we approach uh, service companies. And uh, we walk the talk there. Uh, we, we play fair and transparently, transparently to recognize them for, for their successes and uh, transparently to hold them accountable for, for their misses. And I, I think uh, when we first started uh, seven years ago or six years ago and we signed the first exclusivity agreement, uh, there was a lot of fear. That was a new thing. And, and a lot of companies were like, uh, why should we? Why would I uh, put all my, my eggs in the same basket? Uh, how can I be dependent? But I think uh, time has uh, shown to then that uh, we were true to that initial value proposition of the the elevated experience, the highest quality levels, and by consequence, they would grow their operation in a healthy and profitable way. So I think we, the fear being there doesn't bother me. Uh, I think uh, it is that constant reminder that uh, we need to deliver on that value proposition and never uh, deviate from it. I don't yeah. know, Matt, if you would have different thoughts about it. No, I, I, I don't. I think, you know, it's, it's just really critical um, for us to, from an OEM perspective, demonstrate that we're all in as well. Um, mm -hmm. I think once they realize that we're in it together, the fear uh, doesn't necessarily become eliminated, but it does minimize. Yeah. Um, and then how you work uh, with the opportunities or the problems that are presented, you know, not just focusing on the inputs, but also the outputs. Uh, and demonstrating, you know, we have an operating system. Uh, we do business assessments. We look at the health. We also bring in their perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's critical. Like I mentioned, and just to reiterate, uh, we're, we're continuing to learn nuances of how service operations are in every single day. Um, there is just not a plug and play strategy out there. Um, but these, these servicers, they're, they're especially the ones that have demonstrated great performance and, um, you know, just becoming very much differentiated in the marketplace from, uh, from a brand uh, representation standpoint, these companies teach us just the agility that it takes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of times we, we have to try to, to keep our pace up with theirs. Um, and so I think that's what kind of minimizes the fear is when you both come to the table uh, you both have skin in the game and you can look at each other eye and eye, eye to eye and say, yep, we're, we're in this together. Uh, and, uh, you know, our definition of success here is to win uh, and, and to be very healthy um, as we continue our journey together. Yeah. 
Simone, I think the point you made about control is so, so important. Like you said, it isn't about control. It never has been because for a lot of companies, it is, that's the fear. But I think that's really the crux of how this entire industry is evolving, because whether we're talking about Whirlpool as an organization looking for how best to partner with independent service providers, or whether we're looking at internal leaders looking at how best to manage, you know, um, W-2 workers, relying on control and compliance is not the way that you're going to get the outcome. It's partnering, empowering, equipping for success, and then trusting, you know, and like, yes, is that a little bit scary? Sure. But no one is having success with control as the objective, whatever the model is. Um, I think that was a, a really good point. Okay, I know we're over time. I'm just gonna ask you guys a last question, which is, um, Matt, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask you two different questions. Matt, I'm gonna ask you, um, if you think about the, the way that Whirlpool invests to make these relationships successful, is there an element of that that you think has the most impact or that companies who are are trying to achieve what you're achieving are most commonly missing? Um, you know, I think uh, just as some lessons learned kind of being five years in, um, I, I probably personally underestimated just how important relationships were uh, in the industry. And if I think about really service, um, I think we're maybe we we might have an opportunity to look at it differently. Um, it's actually just a people business. It's not it's not a product or, or service business. It's all about dealing with people. Mm -hmm. um, and when you get those things right, uh, you unlock, you know, capabilities and potential. Um, that's what a lot of our companies have taught us. Um, and I think once you see that being embedded into a culture, now you, you you really know that that you have the right partnership there, um, and it it's I, I think it's not relative on investment. It's a matter of what are the those infrastructures that you can build out and ensure that that is kind of uh, cascaded across your network, mm -hmm. and how do you put that philosophy into you know uh, a significant amount of companies that can get that right? Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so then last question. Um, Looking back on on your uh, 16 years um, at Whirlpool, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned? You're on mute. I could uh, probably split my answer into two here. If I try to stay focused on Whirlpool as uh, a company and, and their uh, relationships i think uh we really leave our values on our sleeve and we take very good care of our people like whirlpool is very people oriented and that's one of uh, uh, the the biggest probably the biggest reason why i i've stayed for with the company for so long and and intend to continue <laughs> it's uh that uh true and genuine care for uh, the, the people that make uh, Whirlpool a successful company. If I uh, answer your question more specifically to how we, we go to market and uh, do service, I think we are not uh, afraid of uh, trying new things and adjusting and being flexible. So yes, we are 111 years old. Yes, we operate in field service through a network of independence that's made of uh, family uh, businesses or that started four generations ago, but that doesn't uh, put us in a position that we are complacent and, and not open to uh, what is next. I think we are very open to understand the different generations that are out there, not just uh, interacting with our appliances but uh in need of service and their choices as as ways of communication as or what their expectations are for service and i think we try to bring that to our uh 
network of servicers true that they too need to be open and uh, remember that when a consumer is uh, assessing how good or bad we are and a service experience they had with us, they are comparing that service experience with the one that they had for their cars, with the ones that they had for with their internet provider. So I think the our world today is so, everything is just so tangled. We are surrounded by all these experiences. And uh, that was a big learning for me uh, uh, with Whirlpool that uh, we, we take that uh, as uh, a very important thing. We don't lose sight of it. And we are in constant pursuit of like how to adjust, how to better uh, uh, respond to, to that dynamic, not fight it and not mm-hmm. be in denial, but uh, to adjust for for a better outcome. So that's to me one of the biggest uh, uh, things that I've seen. And, and that translates into being customer centric and, mm-hmm. and putting the, the consumers first. And it's not what Whirlpool can do for them is uh, how Whirlpool serves them and, and how <laughs> Whirlpool responds to their uh, unmet needs and expectations. And so I think that uh, comes across very, uh, consistently in our actions, in how we go to market, how we manage our service network. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think for the people listening that are still focused on fear of losing control, they should shift to being afraid of complacency because that's that's the real thing to be scared of at this point. So, (laughs) all right. Thank you both so, so much for coming on and sharing with me and our listeners. I really, really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to be with you here, Sarah. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks. Thanks for having us, Sarah. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. You can find more by visiting us at futureoffieldservice.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Future of Field Service Insider so you can stay up to date and register for the Future of Field Service live tour event closest to you. The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS. You can learn more at ifs.com. As always, thank you for listening.